It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 27th, 2019, the Good Order and Discipline Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C. Joining me from New Haven, from the campus of Yale University, where she is associated with it in some fashion, which I can never remember, and the New York Times Magazine also, but she is not at the New York Times Magazine, Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hello, that was like more detail and introducing unnecessary uncertainty <laughs> to my world. It was. It was. It was also ungrammatical, too. And then uh, John Dickerson is off again this week. I don't even know why. Maybe he's finishing his book. That's okay. Gabfest stalwart Jamel Bowie, New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie, joins us from Charlottesville, probably. Hi, Jamel. Hello. And we are taping on Tuesday. So we're, we're a little bit before Thanksgiving. So you're getting a slightly early gab fest this week. On today's show, what is going on in the Navy? We'll talk about the Gallagher case and the Naval Secretary being made to walk the plank. I guess that's the right metaphor, if it's the Navy being made to walk the plank. Then impeachment takes a breath kind of after a wild couple of weeks. Where do we stand? What is about to happen? Uh, is there more room to, to build a stronger case against the president? And then Thanksgiving is here. Thanksgiving, of course, is a holiday manufactured in part by President Abraham Lincoln. What holidays can we manufacture? We are going to adjust the calendar. We're going to fill out the roster. We're going to find new holidays that we should be celebrating rather than the ones that we do celebrate to go along with our Thanksgiving. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. It is uh, very hard to figure out what's been going on over at the Navy and particularly over at SEAL HQ. But the gist of it seems to be that Chief Edward Gallagher credibly accused of war crimes and convicted of one count of, uh, of criminal activity where he posed with the corpse of an enemy, will remain a SEAL and will certainly remain a hero on Fox News. And the Secretary of the Navy, Richard Spencer, is out of a job. The Gallagher affair has introduced to us to a new and disturbing twist in President Trump's dance macabre with the U.S. government, having corrupted the Justice Department corrupted the intelligence agencies, gutted the EPA, libeled the State Department. He now is choosing to impose his will in disturbing ways on the military. So, Jamel, you are a Navy brat. You're, you're a child of the Navy. Uh, was this the president? You're, you're used to the commander-in-chief having authority over your parents, I suppose, as, as uh, Navy, Navy um, service personnel. Was this the president just exercising his privileges due to him as commander-in-chief, or is there something more sinister here? <laughs> It's a little tough to say, right, as far as the president's privileges as commander-in-chief. It's certainly the case that President Trump has the authority to, say, reverse a demotion. But also part of being commander-in-chief is recognizing uh, good military discipline, military order, acknowledging and recognizing the chain of command, and the uh, military process for uh, dealing with soldiers who have broken uh, laws, both of war and otherwise. And so even if it may be broadly within the president's authority, it still is extremely troubling, right, that the president would take a case uh, of a soldier um, credibly accused of war crimes, of killing civilians, whose uh, own fellow men testified against him, um, testified that they took steps to try to keep him from killing civilians, um, and that this soldier you know, is, is disciplined by his commanding officers on the basis of strong evidence. And then the president reverses that, not because he has any particular reason to think that those uh, that everyone involved in this particular uh, soldier's case was wrong, but because he seems to just think war crimes are good, and that's you know it, it's it's not illegal, but it's like unethical and troubling, and 
kind of runs contrary to the spirit of the whole thing. Emily, the president has now pardoned four people accused, credibly accused or convicted of war crimes, including war crimes at the highest order of murdering innocents. His defense or the president's claim is they're killing machines, let them kill. Or today he seems to have said something about how he was protecting warriors. He's protecting our warriors. What's wrong with that theory of the case that these are, in fact, soldiers who are there to kill? And if they go a little bit far in the performance of their duties, that's that's better than than the alternative. I mean, I don't think we're talking about going a little too far. These are either accusations or convictions about killings that took place off the battlefield. And to state the very obvious, the law of war internationally deeply prohibits those killings and that kind of violence because it's so important to be able to set limits. Certainly when our soldiers are at risk and in a vulnerable position but not actually in combat, we would expect other countries and other forces to treat them as prisoners of war or certainly as people who are protected from random, really random kinds of killings. It should be – I think it's pretty terrifying not only in terms of the message it sends about America's values, although that is also terrifying, but also in terms of our own service members abroad. If you're worried about the brutal conduct of other people, then you want to be setting a different kind of example and sticking really closely to the international rules. You know, the one of the reasons I say that is that it's people in the military are so deeply concerned about the message this is sending. It's very much in line, you know, with how kind of Trump sees the world, America first, this like brutal, um, you know, Hobbesian vision. But I think for people who actually have to serve, this feels dangerous. Right. I mean, I think that where that falls down is that if you look historically, one of the great strengths of the United States, even though we fail to live up to it a lot of the time, even though we're, we're terrible hypocrites, is our... Uh, pretense that we are holding ourselves to a higher standard and our effort to hold ourselves to a higher standard. And often we did a better job than those who are those of our opponents. And that gave us an enormous amount of soft power in the world. It made us trusted and welcomed in places, not everywhere and not at all times, but in disproportionately, we were trusted and welcomed and thought to be able to be, you know, a useful intermediary, a useful hold keeper of the peace, it made it much easier for us to win in the market and to win in peace. And if you think of you think of the probably the most important victory of the past century for the United States, it was to keep a Europe that has been at peace and is essentially allied with the United States and become more or less a single market until recently. And and then to to oversee the collapse of a, an enemy in the Soviet Union uh, that was at its doorstep. And it, that was won. First, it was won on the battlefield, but it was won by the kind of morality of the United States and our willingness to hold ourselves to a slightly higher standard some more of the time than other people were. And it's going to we we will pay the price on this, if not today, then then one day. Jamel, I want to go back to the point you hit on, which is that one of the things that's so noxious about this case and the case of Gallagher and then a case of um, some of the other people that Trump has pardoned is that it is the fellow service people who are reporting and testifying against them. It is the military itself is filled with people who know that holding themselves to a higher standard is critical for discipline, for legitimacy. And and what is that going to do to, to how these, these uh, services operate if that is no longer the case? The vast majority of soldiers and officers are probably going to behave as they've always behaved. But the the problem's never really been the vast majority, right? It's that a good analogy, maybe not a good analogy, but the analogy that comes to mind for me are police officers and cops. That part of the problem with the lack of discipline for bad cops is not that every single cop is going to suddenly become like a killer cop but that the minority of cops who may have an inclination suddenly have a permission structure for doing it. And I think with soldiers likewise, the vast majority of soldiers and officers are not suddenly going to become war criminals. But the small minority who have an inclination towards uh, extreme violence, towards unaccountable violence, all of a sudden now have a permission structure. The president of the United States has essentially said that if you do these things— I will pardon you because I do not think they are actually crimes. 
And given that U.S. troops are still deployed around the world, given that they're still in combat situations, it, it certainly does seem like if that minor, if this minority of soldiers picks up on that message, there may just be more incidents like the one, the ones committed by someone like Gallagher. And then the other thing is that for the people who did come forward and broke the code of silence, which is an important component of being in a unit like the SEALs, they no one has their back. Like it's the opposite message. Right. It's that you're going to get right, and like that's also means that we should expect to have less reporting. Um, I mean, imagine how those soldiers feel. Like that's that to me seems like a terrible position to be in. Right, their colleague. <laughs> I mean, they they know that their colleague. They saw him shoot uh, unarmed civilians. Uh, one report says that they uh, intentionally messed with the scope on a sniper rifle so that if he attempted to shoot someone, he would not be able to aim properly. And so they know this guy is not well. And they've all just testified against him in the expectation that he would be disciplined and removed from active duty. Um, and I don't know. I would feel really nervous about the fact that I just tried to basically, like, you know, have the state take this man's freedom away for good reasons. And he's just been pardoned and has suddenly been empowered for his actions. It would make, it would disturb me uh, and make me worry a little bit. Emily, what do you make of the foo about why the secretary of the Navy Spencer was fired? Because I think his Spencer's view is that he was essentially fired for attempting to maintain good order and discipline and maintain the integrity of the process, or mostly maintain the, maintain the integrity of the process around Gallagher and Gallagher's punishment. And uh, the White House's claim, or the Secretary of Defense's claim, is no, that he was uh, cashiered because he was trying to make a secret deal with the White House, and that was the problem. Does it matter what the real reason is? I mean, is it, is, is, uh, does it matter? Yeah. I think it matters. I mean, it seems like those things could both be true, right? That the Secretary of the Navy was trying to stick up for the rules, but also realized he was in this very difficult position and so was trying to come to some sort of deal. I mean, and the deal could be bad because if you think that Gallagher should have lost his trident and that's a really important message to send, then you don't want any kind of deal. And maybe even entertaining the notion was a bad idea. But the the idea that the official who's like stuck in the middle would try to work something out doesn't seem at all surprising. The notion that that's why the White House and the, you know, Trump's defense secretary wanted to get rid of him, that doesn't seem very plausible. Like he wasn't doing what they wanted. He wasn't simply rolling over and and it is also true that Trump's the commander in chief. So he had the authority to make this call. One of the things that is so disturbing about this, these particular pardons, but in particular, the case of Gallagher, is that it's, um, it's clearly kind of a corrupt inside game. This combination of Fox plus uh, connected lawyers get got Gallagher the, the pardon that he wanted. Clearly, if you have a problem these days, you and it's something that that the president might be able to help with. You hire yourself a Trump crony or get yourself booked on Fox and Friends or some Fox show that you know the president wants wants. And I, I mean, I don't I don't this isn't really a question, Jamel, but like what what are we supposed to do about this? This is just it's it's this way in which there's this this completely shadow parallel set of corrupt activities that can go on simply by by cozying up with Bernie Carrick and a Mukasey and then you're OK. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I think this is sort of low key the problem of American politics right now. Not that, not just that there's like this shadow network of lawyers and, and whomever who can help you get off, but also this sort of shadow information system um, that is a completely closed system. Right, that it's entirely possible to wake up listening to Rush, Limbaugh, you know, make your breakfast watching um, Fox and Friends listen to Hannity. I mean, you can kind of go through your entire day completely ensconced in an entirely parallel information network where someone like Gallagher is, in fact, a hero who's being persecuted by um, politically correct, you know, liberals in the the deep state. Um, And it's uh, continuously reinforced by voices and people that you trust. And in, in the particular moment, it's sort of one of the participants in this as someone taking in the information. It's the president of the United States who then recapitulates it in public statements, thus strengthening the feedback loop. It's very uh, 
Uh, I've used the word a couple times now, but it's very troubling, uh, to put it lightly, and I'm not really sure how one deals with it. Emily, do you know how to deal with it? (laughs) No, I don't know how to deal with it. And it's, I mean, you know, like, this is the reality we live in. The country continues along. We're all going to have Thanksgiving this week. And yet, like, it's deeply disturbing and, like, this parallel reality uh, that is not okay. (laughs) Have you guys looked at the list of people Trump has pardoned? That was a kind of a sidebar for this. The list of people Trump has pardoned is so appalling. It's like Sheriff Joe Arpaio, Dinesh D'Souza, war criminals, Conrad Black, some corrupt Republican politician from California. It's just it's just it's just a very embarrassing list. Not to say that, you know, some of these people, you know, the president should exercise his power of pardon. It's a it's a great power to have. But that he exercises it so politically and for such such extremely scummy people uh, and not for not for the millions of people who probably deserve it is very demoralizing. Jamel, I'll leave you the last word on this. Do you think there this this uh, story has any political legs? Is this a story which, which because it uh, has to do with the military, it it causes any loss of prestige for Trump with people who support the military, or no? Because it actually seems like oh he's he's standing up for warrior culture, and that will generally halo him. On on one hand, I think. There's a Daily Beast report. The, the Daily Beast had a report that Trump may be considering bringing Gallagher on the campaign trail with him next year. So if that happens, I think there might be a good case you could make that this could hurt the president because you would suddenly have uh, at least the, the media and Democrats making the point that Gallagher uh, is an accused war criminal and you'd have uh, details about what he did in the public eye again and that could like move public opinion. On the other hand, a, there's the closed information system, which means that the president supporters are not going to be budged by any of this. There's the fact that uh, within the military, there's a distinct public opinion split between enlisted uh, uh, service members and officers. Enlisted service members are much more friendly towards Trump than officers are. It kind of mirrors the college-educated, non-college-educated split in the larger electorate. And, and so this is the kind of thing which may even improve the president's standing with um, uh, enlisted service members while further uh, sort of deepening his um, hole with officers. Basically, the split between people who do, who may sort of be really uh, committed to a warrior culture and people who value the professionalism of uh, the United States military. But it's it's sort of hard to... To untangle what what the political impact of this would be in an election year, it may end up not mattering at all. Right, that opinions on Trump are just so polarized at this point that this will just be further fodder for people who um, don't like him and will support their view, and for people who think he's uh, the bee's knees. I'm just going to make one final point, which is that you know, get one of the things that Gallagher had in his favor is that he he's like what you imagine Trump thinks a soldier looks. Oh like. yeah, absolutely, like a square, square jawed, jawed white yeah. white dude. And if if Gallagher were a black guy or Latino, no, no chance any of this happens. None. It's it's maybe if he were you know, a black Trump, guy, Trump. I think actually, just as sort of uh, no. Yeah, I th- maybe. Wait, let's. What's Jamel's theory of the case? What's your theory? Say more. My, my theory here is that Trump does like to show off black people who he helps. Yeah, it's true. Amorosa. So I could, I could, if if it were like a Denzel Washington looking dude, you know, square jawed, you know, spitting image of military, uh, uh, with the, with the military um, likes to project itself. Maybe if it were a woman, absolutely not. Hmm. Well, it's it's all yeah, it's, it's, counter, it's all counterfactual. I don't, but we'll see. Let's, <laughs> let's look at what other what, which, what who what other war criminals he's going to pardon in the coming year or so. Gabfest listeners, remember we have our live conundrum show coming up at the Fox Theater in Oakland on December eighteenth. That's just three weeks away, two and a half weeks away. Adam Savage of MythBusters is going to join us to solve conundra of all sorts, all sorts and kinds. And it's going to be really fun. That show is a joyful show. And and uh, Adam Savage is so funny and interesting and smart. So you should join us there. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. And if you want, send us a conundrum yourself. Tweet to us at Slate Gab Fest with, at Slate Gab Fest with hashtag conundrum. 
or go to slate.com slash conundrum and fill out our form there. So slate.com slash live for tickets on December 18th. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Emily, impeachment had a hot and heavy couple of weeks. Now it is stopping for Thanksgiving, sort of. Uh, It seems as though after the holiday, Adam Schiff's committee will file a report to the House Judiciary Committee, and that will be the next step in the impeachment process. Um, I'm I'm an easily confused person, um, so it is not surprising that I find myself flummoxed by all the various things that are happening. But there seem to be, as we take a break from the hearing, so many different threads happening, so many different kind of con- corrupt conspiracies, all of which were aimed at, at trying to implicate Joe Biden, trying to get to tar Joe Biden. But you had a lot of Giuliani this week, Giuliani pressuring to Ukrainian oligarchs under U.S. Uh, who are themselves under threat from the U.S. Department of Justice and Giuliani seemingly trying to get them to do his sinister Biden bidding by offering them uh, a relief from DOJ prosecution. You had Devin Nunes colluding with Giuliani sidekicks. You had another FBI investigation or DOJ investigation of Giuliani about perhaps him channeling foreign money into a PAC. It's just like a lot of stuff going on. It's very confusing. Can you just maybe give the summarize what's interesting or what's important or all this chaff? What is what do we need to focus on? I mean, I think the chaff that's important is what we can prove about what Giuliani and Nunes were doing involving the Ukraine and like how much they were directly involved or just ginning up uh, false evidence against the Bidens in an effort to help Trump and affect the 2020 election. That all seems pretty important. You know, Nunes is like talking about suing CNN for libel based on its reporting. On the other hand, he won't answer a a direct question about whether he met with the Ukrainian former prosecutor who's at the center of the accusations. So, you know, be good to know whether Devin Nunes, arch-Trump defender, member of the House committee that is doing this whole um, impeachment inquiry, whether he was himself directly caught up. I- I'm, I'm interested in that question. But that's all you're actually you've you've, you've fallen into the trap, Emily. You're very in the <laughs> What did weed. you want me to do? Well, no, I want I we, was supposed come to out take of these, a step back. We've, a step back. We've come out of these weeks of hearings. We've heard from all these people. But, you know, then we haven't heard from other people. And then there's all this stuff going on around Giuliani and Trump's taxes. And will Don McGahn have to testify? And it's just there are it's like you're being 
poked in your, the head and also being tickled on the feet and also, you know, and, and also uh, someone has stuck a red hot poker in your eye. Like all different things are happening at once. And how do we focus on what we really need to focus on? What is it? Or Jamel, well, what is it that we need to focus I on? I think you should call it Jamel, though I do have thoughts about the legal proceedings. But let's give Jamel a crack since I failed. So my uh, hot take is you don't need to focus on anything. I think that the best bet going forward is to uh, uh, throw everything at the wall um, to investigate to you know subpoena uh, everyone who might have any information on the president's scandals to hear from everyone to kind of draw these proceedings out. I, I personally, um, I, I understand that House Democrats don't want this to appear partisan, but the fact of the matter is it is partisan, and I don't quite understand the strategy behind narrowly focusing on one thing. And uh, leaving the rest of it kind of to you know float away um, to drive towards a, a, a speedy tri- speedy trial. I think that smarter play, knowing that, and I think I said this on Twitter recently that in just six weeks we've gotten definitive evidence that the president tried to tamper in elections to secure his reelection by having a foreign uh, power, a foreign country. Uh, sort of run a sham investigation of an opponent, right? Like six weeks, we have definitive proof. So knowing what we know about the Trump administration thus far, knowing that there's almost certainly other shady stuff, just go for broke and keep the investigation going as long as possible. If nothing else, we kind of know from the past that Trump does worse in the public when he's sort of in a maelstrom of uh, scandal. And there's the immediate instrumental advantage of keeping a trial out of Mitch McConnell's hands for as long as possible, keeping this thing going so that by the time it does go to the Senate, it might be summer 2020, it might be fall 2020, there simply won't be enough time for um, a McConnell-led Senate to turn this into uh, an attempt to investigate Biden, which is what Republicans in the Senate are already signaling they plan to do. Right. So, so Jamel, so Jamel, to play the like Nancy Pelosi card, at least I think, and not that I've spoken to her recently or ever. <laughs> what about the <laughs> what about the supposed political cost of the country just getting tired of this, feeling like it's distracting? What are you doing about my health care, my uh, other complaints about the federal government, like that whole notion that this matters to people on, in Washington. It makes for great TV, but it doesn't help voters in their everyday lives. So I think I'm going to go for the non-pejorative version of what I think about that argument, which is that I think it's extremely condescending of voters across the country. Um, it, Ameri- like the American public can care about multiple things at once. The American public isn't uh, sort of monomaniacally focused on its pocketbook. It's clear from the 2018 midterm elections that the thing driving uh, the energy for the Democratic Party wasn't some belief that Democrats are going to immediately solve all the problems that uh, voters may face, but anti-Trump energy, a belief that there's something deeply wrong in the country and this is the best avenue to do something about it. Anti-Trump energy is if Democrats are positioned to win the election next year at all, that will be that is the proximate cause. It seems to me that the the smart political play is to actually continue to gin up anti-Trump energy to lean into the fact that that is where the the wins for um, your sales are coming from, and this idea that in fact responding to the public's desire to see the president be held accountable is somehow sort of not the business of elected representatives. It's, I don't know. It's just insane to me. It's an insane thing to believe. I don't know. I tend to think that Pelosi's vaunted capacity for political strategy is like way overstated. And I think that this is a clear case of her hand essentially being forced into impeachment, that impeachment being a clear uh, political benefit for Democrats so far, and that uh, her and her team still basically being... Um, uh, extreme worry words about what's going to happen next. Wait, so Jamel, just to to belabor this point, what is your case that uh, the longer this goes on and the more threads there are, that the American public is more has more anti-Trump energy as opposed to exhaustion? What's the is so, there is there statistic is there polling evidence of that? 
I'm, I don't right. have a position one way or the other, but I just it seems like you'd want to know from a numerical perspective, does this actually make sense? Right. So, so far, there's no particular evidence that the public's gotten exhausted. If anything, I think what the polling shows, and the polling's been pretty stable, um, is that impeachment does better the more that there seems to be sort of like real serious um, revelations. And that's sort of the, the heart of my case is that we know there's probably going to be others. If this does appear just to be um, a fishing expedition, maybe it hurts. Uh, although I think the example of um, Benghazi and the Republican investigation suggests perhaps otherwise. But let's say it's the case of the fishing expedition, expedition does not help, then sure. But if there are regular revelations, if the public is getting regular news about what's happening in the administration, I think that uh, that helps. And I think that that keeps support for impeachment at least at its current level and may even increase it. Um and I, this is part of this is just sort of like not not a database case or quantitative case, but just a sense about how um, public opinion and how the response to the president has been. Um, we kind of know we've over the past three years that when Trump is faced, let's say this, let me say this in reverse: when things are quiet for Trump, he does well. His approval rating ticks up. The public kind of gets habituated to him because. External conditions are basically fine, right? So the economy is growing. There were fighting a bunch of wars, but the public isn't really thinking about them. There's no sense of sort of extreme dysfunction. It's only when there's a sense of extreme dysfunction that Trump really starts to suffer. And part of what creates the sense of extreme dysfunction is the fact that Trump cannot handle serious scrutiny, that when faced with scrutiny, he begins to sort of self-destruct. And so part of my case for just continuing this thing is that the more pressure the White House faces, the more revelations come out, the more likely it is that Trump basically begins to melt down. And it's that melting down which bolsters the Democratic case for switching horses midstream and returning to a sense of normalcy. That's interesting. I mean, what's interesting about that, Jamel, is it makes a different case about timing. I mean, the assumption has been, looking at the legal proceedings, that the Democrats can't afford to wait for the courts to referee their subpoena requests. And that's been based on um, the past administration's experiences, both the George W. Bush and Obama administrations. Congress had these subpoenas that like went on forever in the courts and were unsatisfactorily resolved, even though Congress didn't outright lose. So this week, we got a ruling from the district court, federal district court judge in Washington, Katanji Brown Jackson. And what Judge Jackson said was that This initial very extreme position that the White House took, that McGahn has absolute immunity from testifying, is ridiculous. And, like, this is pretty obvious as a matter of law. And Judge Jackson wrote uh, what sounds like a super solid 120-page opinion, knocking it down. But, of course, now this case has to be appealed and go up the chain. And then when it comes back, even if the ruling is affirmed, then there will be all these questions about whether McGahn has to answer specific questions or not. Like that's the real legal issue here. So that's going to take a while. Then meanwhile, we have the Supreme Court staying in order by the lower courts that Trump's tax returns should get turned over. There are two cases about this. One is about whether Congress has the right to these tax returns. The other is about the district attorney, Cy Vance, in Manhattan. Trump doesn't have a particularly strong legal position in either of those cases. But if the Supreme Court weighs in, we could wind up with a major ruling. And it's not clear what the conservative majority on the Supreme Court is going to have to say about executive power. There are some justices who are extremely pro-executive power. We could be talking about setting some really bad precedents here. There's nothing Congress can really do about that since um, the subpoena case has already been set in motion and the other one doesn't involve Congress at all. But I One thing listening to you make that strong case for letting these proceedings play out is that maybe the delay in the legal proceedings actually just like runs on a parallel track. And the only witness for whom this like matters really is maybe John Bolton. I mean, he has been doing this weird dance where he sort of dangles the idea that he has information, but he wants a judge's order that he's allowed to testify. Well, just Judge Brown actually gave that order. She said that her order would apply even if there were national security concerns. So if he just wants a fig leaf of a judicial order or just like that backup to obey Congress's subpoena, well, like he could testify any day now. 
I wonder if there's going to Jamel's uh, impeachment now, impeachment forever, impeachment everywhere. I wonder if there's actually an interesting thing for Democrats to try to do, which is that it's now clear that these public servants, that the these mid-level officials who are mostly career professional officials uh, can testify and that they've done it and they've done it bravely and very convincingly in a way that has been very impressive. And I wonder if there are other scandalous things that have happened in the Trump administration, even things that we've forgotten, but which are hugely corrupt involving Saudi Arabia or, you know, who knows what else, China, that there are bureaucrats and mid-level appointees waiting to testify and just you just have to identify them and get hearings that are based on that rather than trying because they're never going to get the Trump officials themselves. You're never going to get Don McGahn to say anything interesting for the most part. But there may be other people hidden in the bowels of the deep state ready to have their revenge uh, and do the deep state coup that everyone's talking about. <laughs> I, mean, I think I think uh, I wouldn't describe it as a deep state coup, but I, I think that's right, right? Like if you look at you know, one area that I would love to see Democrats really investigate and throw their resources behind, it's just what is the nature of the president's relationship with the leadership in Saudi Arabia and the leadership in Turkey? That clearly something strange is happening there, um, and that I think the public would gain a lot from a deep investigation of it. And if there are things happening as if there's serious corruption there, and I think there's, um, you know, you're judging from. I will eat my the, shoe if there's not serious corruption in those countries. Right, right, exactly. I, yeah, yeah. I, I was trying shoe. to find a way to like be you know uh, uh, measured about this, but yeah, absolutely. Like it's obvious that there's something extremely corrupt happening in both cases. And if the Ukraine thing is any indication, there yeah, there are probably mid-level bureaucrats, ordinary civil servants who know something. Now, in, now, maybe have an opportunity to talk if Democrats investigate. Earlier in the conversation, we were talking about Gallagher. I said that for the, sort of part of the problem with pardoning war criminals or, or uh, restoring them to rank is that it creates a permission structure for bad behavior. Democrats can create a permission structure for good behavior, for whistleblowing, for helping, for encouraging these bureaucrats and people who are dedicated just to the work of furthering the interests of the United States government to speak in public and to say what they've seen and to say what they think, if they think something is going wrong. And I think that would be valuable in its own right. And um, again, as we've, as we've seen with the president's response to um, uh, similar testimony over the past two weeks, neither the president nor his allies are going to be able to say anything. They have no real defense. The, the only defense they have is the hope that this fades from public view. So let's just not let that happen. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on this, the GabFest, and on other Slate podcasts. And if you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. And today, we're going to talk about what is the idea, the concept, the uh, theory that we learned in school, in college, that influenced us the most and still influences us. What is it that we actually learned that you still take with you every day to work, Emily Bazelon and Jamel Bowie? So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today and listen to that bonus segment. Abraham Lincoln effectively created Thanksgiving as a national holiday. It had a kind of previous existence. He he uh, calcified it on the calendar as the fourth Thursday in November. It was I didn't realize the history. It, like, it actually has some Gettysburg-y kind of celebration quality to it. He, he announced it in October of 1863. It seems to have been associated with, with some sort of celebration of Gettysburg. Um, and so that was what put Thanksgiving on the calendar. FDR moved it around a little bit, uh, but it, it's remained. It's, it's a, so it's a manufactured holiday. It's a holiday that, that has been given a great history um, and, and now is, as we've discussed, Emily and I have certainly discussed many, many times, it's certainly my favorite holiday and it's the only it's the best american holiday in my view um and because it's thanksgiving week and we don't have a lot of time and who you guys don't want to hear some more heavy duty political discussion on a week like this you're cooking your mashed potatoes we thought we would uh do a third segment that was a little bit more um uh, speculative speculative about how to remake the calendar what new holidays america needs what is it that we could add to the to the holiday calendar, and maybe what should we subtract from the holiday calendar that would make uh, that would make us all excited, that would make people find a new celebration that would bring them joy. So we can do this roundtable, or we can just sort of tar- start talking. I have a couple of ideas, uh, but Emily, 
a lady's choice. Go ahead. What do you want to add or subtract? Okay. Well, so my first thought about this, and I am now channeling my son Simon, is that we should have a federal holiday once a month so that there is a three-day weekend once a month. And we already have some of the months covered, but not all of them. Now, I don't mean in suggesting this that there should be less school. I think we should add days to the school calendar if that's necessary, though I don't have a strong position on how many total days there should be. I do think the length of the summer in places that have, like, the long two-and-a-half, three-month summer is has been shown to just be, like, bad for kids learning overall, especially low-income kids who don't have lots of great summer opportunities. I do think, though, that the three-day weekend once a month would just be great as a break and that we should try to really, like, do a better job of protecting it as a real but break. Uh, can I? So that's my first okay, that's your first. Okay. Can I argue with you? About, not, not that it's not a good idea. It's a good idea. I think what I find interesting about the holidays that matter is that they actually come they, – they have – logic behind them they have history they have tradition they have feeling behind them and so so yes oh yeah we'll have a three-day weekend but it, to me it's what would make it valuable is if you say this is this three-day weekend is to say it's labor day or it is um it is uh, i mean one holiday i would it's national park day it's national park weekend so we're, this is the this is the the three-day weekend this is the holiday which honors national parks so a lot of people will be like go to national parks just free admission at national parks or whatever give it i love that idea give it some give it some structure some identity um some symbolism some symbolism yeah, i totally agree i agree i don't think three that, day, like, not just like three-day weekends like oh yeah friday's off or monday's off it's well like the washington lincoln birthday weekend is the vaguest maybe right. in the calendar or veterans day which hasn't really like I don't know. Yes, I agree. I think that's true. I mean, one obvious day to add is voting day. National celebrate voting, actually vote on that day, make it so that it's right. easier for people to vote. And we're really honoring that as a civic holiday. Election Janelle. day. Janelle. Thoughts? I'm 100% pro-holiday. I think people should work less. I think there should be four-day work weeks. I'm, I'm uh, you know, um, what's the use in living in a rich country if people can't take time off? I have like a whole list of holidays I'd like to see, and I agree with David that it does help if they're historically resonant, um, that they are that they have some greater symbolic value. And so I've, I've for years thought that right that Juneteenth should be a national holiday. Everyone gets a day off, um, and you can kind of make it sort of a national emancipation day um, for celebrating right. the end of slavery. I think that would be really great. Um, yep, I'm in. There's a Susan B. Anthony Day in February, so why not like try to make some day in the year be basically a, a suffrage day, like in celebration of women's suffrage. Everyone gets a day off to celebrate the advance of democracy, and maybe that's sort of like the the, the template. Like there, are, we we declare days off for events that represent like the broadening of American democracy. That way, they're nice and inclusive, and everyone can feel good about them. Ooh, are you giving me an idea? Fourteenth Amendment Day. Oh, I mean, hell yeah. That's like such an important reconstruction amendment, right? It would be a way of both celebrating reconstruction and looking at the expansion of our rights um, to liberty, to due process, et cetera. You guys, just not to be not to be We've cold water. You've, you've you. added no. You've added Juneteenth, the Fourteenth Amendment, Susan B. Anthony Day. That's like that's that's like there's a little overlap. We revealed you get our two. identities. You can have two. Our, we you can get proud. two of those. Two of those, but not three. <laughs> Go okay. form a committee and, your... and get two. Um, I think midsummer should be a holiday. So I think that day, I think the June 21st, because it's the longest day of the year. It's like, especially when you're far north, it's just so lovely to have that long day. And every it should be a, a, a day of picnic, a day of parties. People should, kids should get to stay up all night that night. I think that that would be a, a great tradition. You have that in, in Scandinavian countries and it, people are really moved by it. And I think we should we should adopt a piece of that. And I think there should be – maybe there should be some science day, but I don't know what it would be, like the moon landing. I'm not sure. Uh, I definitely think National Parks Day. There should be a National Parks Day or Parks Day. I think that's a, that's a, I think that's a really good idea too. Yeah, include the state parks. State parks are yeah. awesome. Definitely Election Day. Uh, I kind of want there to be Game Day. Like you know that Jewish holiday, Lagba Omer? Where it's like the end of the counting of the Omer, which is just like 
some number of days uh-huh. that's passed. Uh-huh. Anyway, the end of it is like games, right? That was always the fun day at Hebrew school when you got to go outside and play games. I like the idea of like capture the flag and hide and go seek for adults, for everybody. Mm-hmm. Escape rooms could have a really busy agenda down that day. All right. I'm all about more civically themed holidays, so there should be a ratification day to celebrate the ratification of the Constitution, um, which is just as important as its actual writing. That's good. All right. That seems good. That's a good one. Yeah. Could we combine that with July 4th? Or the, the Constitution needs its own separate day from the Declaration of Independence. Oh, separate day. Declar- Declaration gets its own day. What is it? It's it was, when it was num- June 21st, 1788. Is that when a certain number of states had done it? That's midsummer. Yeah, it's midsummer. It's midsummer yeah. day. Perfect. So we can have ratification yeah. in midsummer. Those are kind of not that aligned. I would say those two impulses. <laughs> yeah. Let's stay up all night and like have the sort of chaos of midsummer, and also think seriously about mm. the glory of ratification. Yeah. All right. Well, it's, we're just getting started. I here. mean, I would do things like make Labor Day more of like an explicit sort of like militant labor holiday, but yeah, that, labor history. Right. Really. Would that be fun? Yeah. What would that? What would people like? Why would they enjoy that? I don't know. I would enjoy it. <laughs> They'd learn stuff. But people don't use holidays to learn things. They use holidays to gather or to have activity. Uh, it's holidays are not an occasion for 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 knowledge. They're an occasion for communality and joy and and release. So I don't think. The, the, I, think I don't know. Doesn't mean we can't use them to instill good Republican values. Yeah, we always watch MLK's I Have a Dream speech on MLK Day. Do you really? Yeah. That's nice. You're good. What a good person you are. All right, GabFest <laughs> listeners, if you, have, if you have ideas for great new holidays, please uh, send them to us at uh, – tweet them to us at at slash GabFest or, or go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest, and give us some ideas there. Let's go to cocktail chatter. So when you are having your – Pumpkin spice, uh, pumpkin spice martini, Emily, over Thanksgiving. What are you going to be chattering about? I read such an interesting article about Joe Biden this week. We didn't talk about the Democrats. I was happy to have a break from them. But this article in The Atlantic about Biden as a stutterer, the thesis being that he is still suffering in some way from a fear of stuttering and that this is partly explains his gaffes in talking. I don't think it fixes all of them, but um, it does get to some of them. It really made me have a lot more sympathy for Joe Biden and just a kind of explanation of what's going on. And the key thing about the piece is that it's by a guy named John Hendrickson, who is himself a stutterer, and the insight he brought And the kind of pathos of how the Biden campaign at first, like, ignored him, didn't want to grant him an interview, and then seems to have realized that it was probably in Biden's interest to have this angle explored more. Uh, It's really good. It's in the Atlantic in their January, February issue and also posted online. Jamel, what are you going to chatter about? This past Sunday's episode of HBO's Watchmen. HBO's Watchmen is a it's not an adaptation it's actually very strange what it is it's sort of a in-universe sequel slash remix of uh, a 12-issue comic book series from the 80s by writer Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons called Watchmen and Watchmen is sort of an important uh, comic book series because it's like the seminal kind of deconstruction of comic books uh, series that Alan Moore and Gibbons use sort of these classic characters and archetypes to deconstruct the superhero genre, to think deeply about what these characters represent, to think deeply about the kind of world that would produce them, and kind of comment on America and the UK uh, in the 1980s, and sort of in this in a moment of turmoil and tension and inequality and so on and so forth. Really groundbreaking work, really important. And the HBO series is jumping off of that. And the first five episodes have kind of touched on some of those elements of the series, but have really been, I think, concerned with building um, an independent story. But this past sixth episode called This Extraordinary Being is a direct commentary in a lot of ways on the original comic series and recontextualizes a key part of that series in a way that I think 
completely um, makes you rethink what the show is doing and what the comic book was doing and um, is a really just like fascinating piece of narrative storytelling in addition to being a very well-directed and and well-performed piece of uh, television. So I don't want to go into any more detail because it's, I don't want to spoil things for people, but it, it was a remarkable episode of television. It sort of, uh, it's commenting on the current series, HBO's Watchmen's sort of interest in America's history of racial injustice. Um, and it, I don't know, I was just blown away the first time I saw it. And um, I, I've watched that episode three times now. And each time find something new um, to glean from it. It's really a remarkable piece of uh, television. Can I skip ahead to this episode six, which now I'm interested in, even if I've only seen the first couple episodes? Or is that a terrible idea? It's really worth, like... Watch, really worth watching um, the the first five episodes. It's not so much that each episode is episode six is narratively dependent on those previous episodes, but I think sort of fully being immersed in the world will help a lot. Like you don't need to read the comics, the original comics, I think, for this, but it does, I think, help to have progressed through the series. Wait, I have a second service question. <laughs> I I just started reading the book. Yes. Do I? Which I like. I like. Pretty much like it. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a real comics person, but I'm liking it. Okay. Should I finish it before I watch the show? Um, if you're already reading it, why not? Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, the tricky thing is, is that the 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 world of the comic book. Like, if you've read it, there will be things you notice and like things you pick up on that are fun, but it's not really narratively critical. Um, and even the sixth episode, which is like commenting directly on the comic book, is not necessarily narratively critical to read it because the show does a good job of situating your situating the key points, um, so you can just watch the show and get there. I think I think that the value of reading the comic book, if anything, is to just sort of like get yourself in the mindset of like what the Watchmen style is, which is sort of not just this like you know story of superheroes, but sort of like. Uh, very astute, like meta commentary on lots of different things, um, and a visual style that is sort of very, very dense with detail. The, the thing I like about the comic quite a bit is that you could read it a dozen times, and just depending on how you look at the panels, how you focus on the panels, you'll notice um, different elements, um, different things, uh, and that kind of that that thing carries over to the series as well. I think. All right, my chatter. So it's Thanksgiving, uh, so I'd like to give thanks in my Thanksgiving chatter. And I've had a, I had a really tough and heartbreaking year this year. And one way to get through hard times is through country music. And so I wanted to give thanks and recommendations to the women of country music who have been the soundtrack of my bad year. So I want to say happy Thanksgiving to Ashley Monroe and Maren Morris and Brandi Carlisle and Emmylou Harris and Jody Messina and Casey Musgraves and Lucinda Williams, and Iris DeMent, and Loretta Lynn. I wish you many, many tears, ladies, in the coming year, so you'll have great new songs for me. So thank you for being such a, such a, uh, so supportive of me in the past year, and, and may you have another miserable year. Listeners, you have given... That was a good list. I like that list. Uh, yeah, well, there's pl- plenty more on it. Plenty more on it. <laughs> Mary Chapin Carpenter, Ashley McBride. I like Ashley's of all sorts. Dolly Parton, Patsy Cline. I was thinking Dolly Parton was missing. I'm glad you threw her in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hear You Come Again. That is a song that I really love. That is a great song. So, uh, listeners, you, again, as usual, did yourselves with your listener chatter. You've been tweeting them to us at Slate GabFest. And, again, like, let's do a jolly one, a jolly chatter from Rachel Johnston, Ph.D., at, at Rach M. Johnston. And she sends us a story about firefighters saving the day. And it's a story from, I think, a Chicago newspaper about a boy who was having a birthday party. I think he was a seven-year-old boy. And a lot of people said they were coming and nobody showed up at the birthday party. And these firefighters who were down the street um, just were heard about it. Um, someone mentioned it to them. And they showed up at this birthday party and had a birthday party with this boy and it's just, it'll make you cry. I wept reading the story. Super cute story. So check it out. That is our GabFest for today. The show is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Ryan McAvoy helped out Emily at Yale. Rosemary Belson helped me out here in D.C. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. 
You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and send chatter to us there and send your conundrums to us there with a the hashtag conundrum. And you should come to our conundrum show in Oakland, California on December 18th at the Fox Theater. Go to slate.com slash live. There's still tickets there. For Emily Bazelon and Jamel Bowie, what are you guys going to eat? Jamel, what is your distinctive Thanksgiving food that you're going to eat on Thursday? We're going to have collard greens and mac and cheese and stuffing. I think I'm excited to make. It's very simple, but just whole roasted carrots with garlic and dill. Yum. Mm, that sounds yummy. And uh, I have some other things on the menu. Going to bake a sweet potato pie, as always. Going to bake a salty honey pie, which my parents haven't had before, but I make uh, every year. So it'll be good. Wait, did you say salty honey? Yes. It's a it's a honey custard mm. um, that is finished with um, uh, flaky sea salt. Yes. I know a pie mm. like that. That sounds delicious. Uh, that sounds really good. Emily, what, I'll eat that. What, uh, what's the thing that you're going to eat that you're looking forward to? I always make apple pie. That's my wholesome, basic contribution. I know it's not super exciting, but I'm not a big pie maker, so just my making pie at all makes my husband in particular happy. You're a very good baker in general, in my experience. You're... But I'm not like a pie person, hmm. usually. Uh, not like you. But for me, although I'm not going to make any pies, I've got other duties, but it'll be my mother's mocha chocolate crunch pie. I strongly recommend. There's a recipe for it on Slate somewhere. It's the greatest dish anyone has it's ever made. super yummy. It is unbelievably really good. good. So I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. So Slate Plus today, why not? Why not talk about what we learned and what stuck with us? So I was thinking I have a daughter who's in college and then a son in high school, another son in sixth grade. But I was talking to both my daughter and my my middle son uh, this week and just struck at them them learning certain concepts or learning ideas that I remember learning myself or have already forgotten. And then you think back like, well, what, what did I learn? What did I ever learn in school anyway? And obviously you accrete all sorts of knowledge, but, but I was interested in sort of what the, what the theories that stuck with you hardest, the things that you, you either use or uh, like have become a defining metaphor for how you see the world or just for some reason were, were super vivid for you. And I wondered what that was for you guys. And I, I, I have three myself. But I want you to start with this one. I can start with um, – I'll start with one of them. Um, I think the one concept in biology or maybe evolutionary biology, I'm not sure what you call it, that has stuck with me is the idea of K strategies versus R strategies. Do you guys remember what that is? No. In reproduction? So a K strategy is a creature that has a few but very expensive offspring. So us, where you give your, your offspring a ton of care – you really are there. They gestate for a long time. You individuate them. You're, you know, it's an elephant. It's a giraffe. It's us. Uh, and our strategy is where you just have like a gazillion offspring. Don't give them any care. Just toss them out. Your classic like fish, your your fish strategy, your sea turtle strategy. It's like we're just going to have a ton of them. Maybe a few of them are going to survive. We're not going to really give them any care. And it's a very useful way of understanding biology, I suppose, and how certain creatures pursue different strategies. It's also really useful when you start to think about different ways of approaching problems in life. Like there's certain kinds of problems which you want to approach by giving it a huge amount of care and attention and time. And there are other problems which you're like, you know what, we'll just try a million different things. Some of them work, some of them won't. We won't invest too much energy in it and see what happens. And I, I find that a very useful metaphor a lot of the time. That's fascinating. Emily, what's something you've learned once once. Sometimes I just feel overwhelmed by all the things I haven't learned, but I'm going to answer in the affirmative. So utilitarian theory occupies me a lot. I don't entirely subscribe to it, but I think about it as a template often for deciding how much I care about something. So Jeremy Bentham and Cesar Beccaria talking about the idea that you GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 